Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And I have with me today uh, a friend from back in seminary days who uh, is now teaching uh, at Cedarville University, that being Matt Bennett. Uh, Matt has been a missionary, again, an author, a professor. Uh, We're going to talk mainly uh, missiology today. So, Matt, appreciate you being on the podcast. Absolutely. And we should caveat that we were friends as long as we weren't on the intramural football field, at which point among the enemy, but uh, that's all right. Hey, well, we, we, I still remember us being volleyball champions. And so uh, that was one of the highlights of my seminary days. Um, (laughs) You got the t-shirt. Yeah. But I've been so thankful to follow, you know, just to know kind of ministry wise, what you've done. Certainly we think about talking about what, what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century, Baptist love missions. And uh, it's really why the SBC got started. Uh, and so that's a really, really good topic for us to talk about. There's obviously a lot going on there. I want to mainly talk in the areas of things you've written uh, and hear from you on those things. But typically, when we first have somebody on, we, we try to get to know them a little bit with some fun questions. So I want to start basically, let's start first with just a testimony question. How did you come to know the Lord, kind of feel a, a draw to kind of vocational ministry, even missions in particular. Uh, just give us a little idea of how the Lord worked in your life in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had uh, I had the incredible privilege of getting to grow up in a, a home where my parents both loved the Lord and took their faith seriously. Uh, it was the center point of who they were, and that definitely trickled down into how they parented us um, and, and how they led by example. Grandparents, likewise, um, my grandparents were actually involved in planting the church that I grew up in. And so we were very churched, very involved, and I was exposed to the gospel. Um, you know, I don't remember a time where I wasn't hearing the gospel. Um, it definitely uh, expressed my own faith at an early age. But, um, you know, as most people who would point back to some of those early points of uh, confessing the gospel, uh, it took a little bit longer before I began seeing some of the the fruit of that. Um, and so high school is another point that I, I look back at and I see the Lord really ratcheting up some of the sanctification process, particularly as I saw the, the need to make my faith something that I was going to invest in without the outside inputs of, of my family present as I moved away to college and uh, made the commitment uh, to be baptized um, as a 17-year-old. And then uh, all the while, I I really do think the Lord was working on my heart uh, to prepare me for some sort of ministry and and even missions. But I can look back to those early days of of sensing that. And I, I remember almost comically at this point, sitting in some of the conversations where missionaries would come through and they do their presentations and I remember leaving those those times excited for what the Lord's doing around the world, but actively praying like, Lord, don't ever make me do that. And so I think there was something in me, even at an early age, that kind of knew that was on the horizon. And even though I was resistant to it, was uh, responding to it out of a desire for my own comfort. Um, college, really, the Lord got a hold of me as I uh, saw the opportunities to step into various ministries and, and leadership roles and really 
began cutting my teeth in evangelism on a secular state campus, had lots of opportunities to invest in uh, gospel sharing opportunities, which uh, led to discipleship relationships. And um, man, the Lord really just reshaped my vision for what what it looked like to invest my days as a stewardship for for his kingdom. And I shifted from a very vocational uh, vision for where things were going to something that was shaped like ministry. And it was very closely in tandem with that, that the Lord started saying, well, if you're if you're not looking for comfort and sort of a, a American dream type perspective, if that's not goal number one anymore, then ministry is coming onto the field. And uh, why not consider a place where access is lacking uh, rather than just doing it in a familiar place? There's places around the world lacking that access. And that was really the the time that he started to stir missions in my heart. And then you made your way to Southeastern. Was that in particular because you were ready to to study, to, to be prepared for international mission work? Yeah. Yeah. So we worked with the campus ministry for a while and they did a really good job of training us as disciple makers and evangelists in a North American collegiate environment. Um, but we realized as the Lord was drawing our hearts, my wife and I, um, as he was drawing our hearts to uh, an international setting for our ministry, we realized that we didn't we didn't have the equipping theologically to actually lay the foundation of of a church and to do some of that thicker work of making disciples among the nations. And so we wanted to go to seminary. And uh, I always kind of joke that um, it was a combination of the Lord's sovereignty and Google's algorithms that led us to Southeastern because we, as as we were sensing the Lord uh, drawing us overseas and and also calling for the need for further preparation we put in the search the search bar three key words one was seminary one was missions and then the third one was cheap and southeastern popped up and uh we met bruce ashford and we were off to the races that's awesome so then from there you obviously you went to the middle east i want to talk more about that later in the podcast um was there but real quick before that was there a reason why the middle east in particular yeah up till that point, uh, we had just kind of had the typical uh, vision of, of where missions happens in our mind. The, the Lord was calling us to Africa if he was calling us to be missionaries. So we kind of had the continent and no further details. And when we joined up with this particular cohort that was coming in to do the mission studies, the MDiv with International Church Planting emphasis at Southeastern, they were looking at the Muslim world. And so at that point, uh, we just kind of said, well, we'll trust the Lord's providence and sovereignty in these things that in his timing, this is the place we're supposed to focus our attention. So it was concordant with some of our beginning of our studies. That's good. That's helpful. All right. We'd like to ask some fun questions to get to know our our, um, our, our participants in the podcast. So I want to just do that real quick, kind of like thank rapid fire um, family feud answer as quick as you can. So first one, uh, more spiritual favorite book that's not the Bible. Ooh, that's a good one. Right now, because of recent uh, recent work, The Open Secret by Leslie Newbegin. Okay. And you, you are doing some work on Leslie Newbegin right now, uh, the, a book you'll have coming out in the new year. Yeah. Yeah. In February. Talk more about that. Number two, favorite athlete of all time? Uh, Michael Jordan, hands down. So I normally ask Jordan or LeBron, but you've already answered correctly, actually. Um, all right. Given your interest, First ever international mission trip. Where'd you go? I went to Romania. Romania. First one. 
All right. Normally I ask favorite food, but since you're an international missions guy, I want to ask the weirdest food you've ever eaten. Ooh, uh, ostrich testicle. <laughs> it makes me think of the movie Funny Farm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, final one. Uh, I want, I mean, was it good? Uh, no, but the alligator was worse. The alligator was worse. Wow. Okay. All right. Last one. Uh, first sermon. What was the text you preached? John 10, 10, I think. How old were you? Uh, 20, probably. Okay. So fairly, fairly early on. That's great. Um, all right. Well, let's go back, kind of shift back to some of the things you have written on experience uh, there's in, in particular, there's one article that you've written, uh, a paper you, you wrote that I want to ask some questions on uh, because it's uh, kind of central to some people's argument about urgency of missions. But just quickly, give us a highlight of what you have written on uh, both your dissertation uh, and then published books. Yeah. So a lot of my writing has come either from things that have been prompted by our work on the field that have uh, caused me to both reflect myself and then recognize maybe there's some opportunity to take those reflections and, and share them more broadly. A lot of stuff comes from recognizing that uh, missions and theology are always intended to be wed together and they both need each other. So theology needs to make sure that it doesn't complete its task before it asks, so what? And missions can't be so driven by results or pragmatic uh, considerations that it sort of loosens its ties from its theological moorings. And so uh, a lot of things that I've been writing, at least in the realm of Islam and, and Christianity and working as a, a missionary among Muslim primary contexts, is that uh, I'm trying to sort of clear the ground for saying there is a lot of room for confusion as we're sharing the gospel with Muslim friends using language that they would initially recognize, but in their recognition is actually freighted with a Quranic or an Islamic uh, set of baggage. Trying to do the work of saying, what do we mean when we say things like sin? When we talk about characters like Jesus, what are the, the non-negotiable elements of that that come and are driven by, by the scriptures? And then on the, in the contrary, uh, when our Muslim friends hear that, even if they're nodding along, what are they preconditioned to hear and to understand when a word like sin or a character like Jesus is referenced? And then what responsibility does the missionary have to clarify, hey, I know that you might think this when you hear me say this word, but can I show you what I mean? And can I show you where it comes from in the Bible? That's been a lot of uh, a lot of my my burden, and so I've written a couple things on uh, mission among Muslims, uh, and then um, plan to have a long term project where I'm going to be doing kind of a uh, a systematic theology that has a missional output to each one of the loci. Oh, really? okay, great. That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, and to seeing that. So I, I want to ask the specific question theologically, and then I want to come back around to, to asking some things about your, what you're encouraged about and discouraged about, particularly when it comes to missions in Middle Eastern and Muslim context. But, you know, one of the things that's been a driving force, um, I think, both in the IMB and I'm not all the IMB, but pockets of the IMB, but certain missions in general is Matthew 24, 14. I'll just read Matthew 24, 14. It says, in this gospel, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. 
Okay. That verse is used by many as the motivator for missions. Um, in fact, I've heard of anecdotally of missionaries, you know, lamenting my, my child will not get to go to their prom because we're going to reach so many people and reach the nations and, and in some sense usher in the kingdom before uh, that is to happen. You've written on that verse in particular. Talk through what you wrote, kind of why you wrote against that sort of mentality that I was explaining uh, and help us think rightly about uh, a plain reading hermeneutic on that and and how it should affect missions. Yeah. So there's a little bit of history that I think is helpful to work through, as well as a little bit of contemporary um, mobilization um, that that both play into this. The, the historical piece is that really at the beginning of uh, the 20th century, you have new innovation, new technology, new opportunity that is presented to the world through transportation systems and uh, just global access that uh, that is fresh on the scene. And rightly, uh, a lot of people are starting to ask the question, well, how do we use these new technologies in a way to advance the, the global advance of the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel? And People get really excited around the idea of saying for the first time in history, this generation could reach all of the nations of the earth. And that becomes the drumbeat for evangelical evangelism centered missions for the, the whole of the 20th century. Then in 1974, there's this big conference in which a guy named um, Ralph Winter gives what could be one of the most influential addresses to a gathered community of missionaries as he talks about nations, no longer meaning nation states, but rather um, in a biblical context, this ethne being people groups. So the false borders that are, are the superimposed borders on any geographical territory that contemporary geopolitical uh, nations would be identified by are not actually what's in view here, but the many different peoples who are linguistically or culturally separated or separable from one another. So he says our task is actually making sure that each one of these nations, each one of these peoples is able to have access to this gospel of the kingdom. And so he really uh, drives in on the Matthew 24, 14 reference to the Pantata ethne or the uh, of all nations element of the the focus of the proclamation of the gospel. And he, in uh, one article, makes the comment that the missionary task, the irreducible missionary task, is what we find in Matthew 24, 14. That is the proclamation of the gospel. Now, what Winter's getting at there, I don't think is as reductionistic as later, uh, later use might make it of it. He's trying to say, no, we we can't sacrifice proclamation at the altar of humanitarian gospel-driven activity and say that's still missions. Like we have to center our work on the proclamation of the gospel, which I would, I would agree on. But at the same time, that shift of attention from something like Matthew 28, where we've got the Great Commission that's sort of a go-to text to Matthew 24, actually has a really profound impact on those who are saying, for the last hundred years, that uh, that we could finish this task of identifying all of the people groups, because now our technologies in 1974 and now in 2022, now our technologies and our ability to assess peoples are even more precise and accurate. And so we can identify not only the number of peoples, but where they're at, and we can deploy people quickly 
to get the gospel there to make sure that Matthew 24, 14 happens and that subsequently Jesus can come back. So there's a, a real push for this urgency of the task that really does see eternity hanging in the balance between people hearing the gospel and responding to it versus not having an opportunity to respond and entering into a Christless eternity. It's a good and right urgency that we need to feel. But when you look at the, the exegesis, like what you were asking about of Matthew 24, 14, it fails to actually carry the water of defining our task, um, at least not in full, because it's not a command. I think that's the, the, the essential element of it. If you look at the context of Matthew 24, the disciples are asking, when are, when are you going to establish the kingdom? And Jesus gives about nine things that are really uh, uh, antithetical to what one would expect in his establishment of his kingdom. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be strife and suffering and all sorts of things that would stand in opposition to the advance of the kingdom and would make it seem like all evidence is pointing to the contrary of the success of this program. But then in Matthew 24, 14, we get this beautiful promise. like. Basically, uh, fear not, the kingdom and the gospel of this kingdom will, in fact, be proclaimed to all peoples, and then the end will come. So the end will not come without this promise being fulfilled. So this is a good uh, ballast-giving text to a people who are looking around at a world that seems to be running headlong towards a Christless uh, expression to say, despite all of that evidence to the contrary, God will make good on this promise. The fact that it's not a command should inform us to say how he is going to do that and what our role is going to be in that is going to be found and described and defined more fully in another passage. And that's where I think the, the shift is, because what we do is instead of saying we are called to make disciples of all nations, we take Matthew 24, 14's promise and we say proclaiming the gospel among all nations or among all peoples is our task. And then we begin to reduce some of the some of the necessary elements that might be part of making disciples in order to fulfill the promise. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's 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 really helpful. Some follow up questions to that. So obviously, I'm, I hear you saying, but maybe unpack a little bit more. Uh, so then, finish the task. In that sense, is not the task of the missionary or the task of missions. Yeah, so, yeah. I think finishing that task. Yeah. Well, sorry. One. So, like, yeah. Respond to that question, then also give us a proactive, like, what is the task then of missionary uh, missionaries and the and the mission enterprise? Yeah. So that's good. Finish the task. Then kind of comes along with this idea of global evangelization being possible for the first time at the beginning of the twentieth century. Well, if that is our task, and that is something that we've made a, a goal for this generation or any subsequent generation then we can say, let's champion every effort that we have to finish that task. And let's leverage every resource that we have to making sure that it is being most efficiently targeting the finishing of that task. Efficiency and stewardship are, are two aspects of our, uh, of our efforts. I mean, if we're given only so many breaths and so many resources, they should be narrowly targeted on what are our priorities. The problem is if we make our task sort of coterminous with world evangelization and we leverage all of our efforts at 
world evangelization, while that is a necessary first step to the task that we've been given, it doesn't actually exhaust the responsibility that we've been given. The responsibility comes from the commands that are clearly given four chapters later in Matthew 28, where we're told to make disciples of all nations, to do so by going, to do so by baptizing in the triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptism being something constitutive of the the people of God recognized in local churches. So I would say church planting is a natural consequence of that. And then teaching total obedience to everything that Jesus commanded, which is both dispositional, that we are to be people who are subject to King Jesus, but it is also something that requires us to be uh, informational. You can't teach someone to obey all that Jesus commanded and then fail to teach them what Jesus commanded. So I think both of those things make for a more holistic, thicker task that we have that ultimately I struggle to be able to say that's a task that can be finished Mm. Uh, because, I mean, Nate, when did you finish your discipleship? It's it's still coming sometime, brother, down down the road. Yeah, um, yeah that that's very very helpful. Um, the kind of the fuller understanding of what's happening in Matthew twenty eight, as opposed to just um, the, what he's saying is going to happen in Matthew twenty four. So I, I think I've heard you kind of allude to a few things, but what would be some of the reasons? Some, um, you know, I, I hate to say negatives, but what would be some of the impact that having that, I guess, less full understanding of what the task is. What are some of the impacts that makes that on missions and missionaries? And how can we actually try to overcome that with a with a you know, obviously this more comprehensive picture of what our what our operation is actually supposed to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the uh, some of the real extreme versions, I guess, uh, come from maybe even the criticism that has been levied over the last bit uh, of short-term missions, where somebody goes in for a week. They preach the gospel through a translator and a bunch of people raise their hand and they go away saying, okay, that nation is done or that people group is done. And so then they move on to the next group. On one hand, man, praise the Lord for the desire to proclaim the gospel in a place and to see it move quickly through a people, to see them grab a hold of it, make it personal, recognize it a message for them. That's a a beautiful and necessary first step. But if you depart, before those roots have gone deep, if you spread the seed like the farmer and then just walk away, there's a sense in which that assessment of has this actually taken root? Is it being uh, guided towards fruitfulness? Is it being pruned and tended like the plants that we plant need to be? Uh, I think you begin to see um, on one hand, the danger of false conversion, Um, On another hand, you uh, have reduced the task that you've been given to proclamation of the gospel and not making disciples in that place. And then perhaps the worst situation is that with those false conversions, you may also inoculate people to the true demands of the gospel and its, uh, its life of discipleship expectations. So for somebody to be able to say, well, that missionary came in, told me this message in the past, I raised my hand, I'm good, actually stunts the growth of the, the church in that place. And it it limits it to, 
even if it does pass on perfectly from missionary to first generation of hand raisers to the next generation, you've limited their access to what the implications of this gospel message are to what they've been taught. And, and so the, the necessity for present ongoing life on life, all encompassing vision of the life of a disciple, I think is something that can't be accomplished in a one week short term trip. So that's extreme, but you can read that back on a, a scale of, of investment that people would, um, would find themselves on a spectrum from setting up shop and bringing your coffin with you and pastoring the church that you planted to something that looks akin to the, you know, real quick exposure type model. And there's a spectrum in between. Yeah. And again, it would probably be over simplistic, but this is a kind of a argument for disciples rather than just converts um, it is sort of to boil down what you're saying. So let me ask it then. Let's not just obviously be critical of, of something that we would think is problematic. But from your point perspective, then, since your your task, as you went to the Middle East, Muslim context, when you got there on the ground, then here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Right. So proactively, then picture of Matthew 28, comprehensive discipleship and desire. So you get on the ground, kind of talk about what were you planning then to, to see? Lord willing, obviously, we understand sovereignty of God and salvation. What was the plan as far as, hey, here's what I hit the ground to start doing and start to see happen, kind of give a positive kind of vision for how you were going about uh, your mission missionary strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, to to look at some of the contemporary methodology uh, that is serving as a corrective uh, from some of the historical picture of a missionary coming in and being the man um, uh, over a church of national believers and just retaining that position of authority and leadership until they breathe their last. I think the contemporary missions has healthily shifted back to saying the role of the outsider is to equip um, those who believe to not only be disciples themselves, but to make disciples, to encourage national believers to take on the role and responsibility of ministry as those who are being saints who are equipped to do the work of ministry in an Ephesians 4 sort of way, and then to especially raise up leaders who would be elder qualified from within those communities who can take that next step of guarding doctrine and of being people who can read through the pastoral epistles and say, to the best of my ability and my understanding, I am able to fulfill this duty over this church and to raise up others who then would be sent out as national missionaries. And I think oftentimes our traditional methodologies have maybe fallen short of actually expecting the, the mission field church to participate in missions for a host of different reasons. And I think some of the contemporary correctives have been such that they've said, no, let's not put this high bar of, you know, having a PhD in theology before you can actually do ministry. Let's not cripple people with those extra biblical expectations, but let's rather equip them. I think the the dangers and and some of what I found myself fighting against were that we strip away lots and lots of those expectations and get to a very reduced vision of what it means to be elder qualified. And we start encouraging people to step into leadership roles when they don't necessarily understand doctrine well enough to even be able to guard it. 
maybe they haven't read through the scriptures in whole themselves and they're trying to teach others and um, they're released to their own autonomy before they've uh, matured sufficiently to actually be able to sustain and multiply. Hmm. Good. Give me, uh, I want to kind of get you out of here on this. This has been really, really helpful. I want maybe two part questions, start negative, go to positive, but particularly when you think about missions in the Muslim world, you've written on this again, 40 questions uh, on Islam would highly recommend that. Uh, and some other things that are, that you've written and some things that are coming out, but what are you most concerned about when it comes to missions, particularly in the Middle Eastern Muslim world? And also, what are you most excited about in the days ahead? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think um, there's always going to be the persecution element that adds another layer of complication to ministry among Muslims. And when you couple the desire to reduce unnecessary persecution, which is a good desire, with the urgency to make the gospel something that is not layered with additional expectations, but which is clear and receivable and fruitful in its proclamation among a people, I think you have a double reason to move towards a, a reductionism. I think with Islam in particular, because of so many superficial similarities that we would share, um, I mean, you sit down in a taxi and you talk to a a Muslim taxi driver, it's almost inevitable that when they find out that you're a Christian, they have some sort of a response like, oh, well, I, I love Christians. You know, I, in fact, I, I love Jesus. I couldn't be a good Muslim without loving Jesus. So we're basically, you know, same, same. Uh, so there's a lot of superficial things that we would agree on, even to the degree of them claiming to know and love and revere Jesus, at least as a prophet. And so the temptation to use that as common ground for momentum and to affirm that, in fact, yeah, we do believe in the same God in the same way or in the same Jesus or uh, sin is a, a common concept that we don't need to further explain. I think when you pair that with a desire to see fruit and um, desire to, to see it move quickly, Sometimes you can take shortcuts in uh, fully, deeply explaining the fact that how oh, there's actually profound differences and we need to be able to address them before we can actually say that we've communicated the gospel in that place. Mm -hmm. uh, most encouraging things moving forward in the days ahead. Um, obviously, there's a lot of passion to international missions, but what are some things that are encouraging signs to you? Well, specifically in the, the Muslim world and in some of the places where there's the historically the most resistance to the gospel and, and Christian presence, we're seeing some incredible things happening. Um, there's a lot of disillusionment with Islam, a lot of cracking in its uh, sort of austere expression as people are being exposed to the, the failures, the inabilities, the, the hollowness of Islam to actually provide what it claims to be able to provide. There's uh, disillusionment that comes with that. There's exposure to uh, questions uh, via the internet and social media and things that have always existed about Islamic claims, but which have oftentimes been unasked or unaskable within those uh, closed off contexts that now people are beginning to be exposed to because of social media or access through the internet. And that's causing a lot of opportunity for people to enter in 
as believers to the, the questions that are now being asked and saying, you don't have to abandon God and become an atheist, but these questions should lead you to say, is there, is there something more real, more satisfying, more true, and something that corresponds better to the universe as it is out there? And would you be willing to consider the, the testimony of scripture as it offers what is in fact true? Um, and so the, the opportunities and the peak numbers of Muslims who are coming to faith are, are very encouraging. Yeah. And te- I mean, even you mentioned, mentioned just the technological changes, all these things are, are obviously bringing challenges, but they're also bringing great opportunities. Um, so if you want to read Matt, so again, the 40 question series, 40 questions on Islam has another book called the Christian and the Quran. Uh, you have a dissertation that that's also available on Amazon. For instance, it's kind really of good like, for narcolepsy. So what's that? Really good for narcolepsy. It's good for narcolepsy. Well, it's about atonement in Hebrews and in the Quran. So I mean, helpful in this conversation. Um, and then you're writing something coming out. Uh, talk briefly about what's coming out in 2023 and then where they can find the article you did on Matthew 24, 14. Yeah. So uh, in 2023 in February, I've got a book coming out on uh, Leslie Newbigin and the American Evangelical Church. Um, it's called Hope for American Evangelicals trying to acknowledge some of the the real issues and intentions that we are facing that have been surfaced by a number of different venues. But rather than abandoning things, trying to take on um, a more positive, constructive way of looking at them and offering the lenses of a missionary returning to a home context to say, what would it do to some of our discussions about racial issues, about politics and nationalism, about um, sex, uh, what would it do for us to look at some of these really hot button issues through the eyes of a missionary? Um, and, and is there some advantage to that for the American evangelical church that might allow us to, uh, to, to do better, uh, on some of these places where we've, we've struggled, um, to both testify to the beauty of scripture and to live it out. And so, uh, it's uh, that should be coming out in February. It's with B&H, Hope for American Evangelicals. I'm really excited about this one, to be honest. Great. And then the article on Matthew 24, 14. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was published um, in kind of article form or academic form called Finish the Task uh, question, with a question mark on it, um, a cautionary analysis of missionary language. And that is on the Southeastern Review of Theology um, on their, their journal. You can just type that in and, and Google yeah, it and it'll show up. Yeah. And there's a few blog level options with, with similar things. I think there's one with nine marks and one with ABWE on the idea of finishing the task. It's great. Well, Matt, I appreciate your time. We definitely want to have you on talk more missiology in the future. Um, very, very thankful for the conversation and just the work you're doing. Keep it up. And um, yeah, we appreciate you guys listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.